0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Bardflies, a podcast about the final play in the Shakespearean canon. This week, we come full circle with another play about broken bro code and sexually frustrated noblemen. I'm Will Quinn.
1: And I'm James Smith.
0: This is episode 39, The Two Ignoble Podcasters.
2: I saw her first. That's nothing. But it shall be. I saw her too. Yes,
0: but you must not love her. James, would you care to give us a plot summary of this ultimate Shakespearean play?
1: Ultimate indeed, Will. In Shakespeare's second collaboration with John Fletcher and his final, yes, listeners, his final play, the bard and his co author, borrow from Chaucer's The Knight's Tale and transport us to the audience room of Duke Theseus and his wife Hippolyta in Athens. Three women have arrived from Thebes to report that the dastardly Creon has killed three kings and refuses to bury them. They beg for justice against the tyrant, and Theseus agrees to declare war. The action then jumps to Thebes, where we meet the cousins and friends Palamon and Arcite, the two noble kinsmen in the title. Although disgusted by Creon's tyranny to have contemplated leaving before the war began, they answer the call to duty and fight honorably against the Athenians, only to be captured. The two men are put in prison and whimsically engage in homosocial banter and resolve themselves to pretend that they are elsewhere, living lives of noble and stoic contemplation, by choice rather than necessity. This immediately falls apart when they look through their prison window and see Amelia, Hippolyta's sister, the two men fall in love with her instantly and quarrel, engaging in competitive descriptions of her beauty and their ardor, with Palamon declaring that he saw her first. The plot takes a turn when Arcite is released due to the entreaties of a relative and is banished from Athens. He competes in a wrestling tournament in disguise and becomes Amelia's bodyguard and servant. At the same time, the daughter of the jailer has fallen hopelessly madly in love with the imprisoned Palamon and helps him escape into the woods. She tries to woo him, despite her humble origins, and is rebuffed due to his infatuation with Amelia, sending the daughter into a fit of nonsensical and somewhat amusing madness. She is found and adopted by a troop of country bumpkins who are headed to perform a dance before Theseus and Hippolyta. Palamon, living in the wood in dire straits, runs into Arcite. They argue, but Arcite agrees to bring food and weapons to Palamon so they can duel over Amelia. When he comes back, the two think back fondly on better times and then fight, only to be stopped by Theseus, who orders them both to be arrested and executed. But Hippolyta and Amelia beg for mercy, which in this case means a tournament for Amelia's hand in which the loser will be executed. Meanwhile, the distraught jailer tries to track down his daughter and eventually finds her. After failing to bring her to her senses, he accepts the advice of a quack to bring the daughter's former wooer to the scene and have him pretend to be Palamon. The hope is that she will eventually accept the wooer as her true love instead over time. He does this all under the guise of being the nobleman and is encouraged to sleep with her under his assumed identity. Amazingly, this strategy works. On the day of the tourney, Arcite offers prayers to Mars for victory, Palamon prays to Venus to win Amelia's love, and Amelia prays to Diana that whoever loves her best wins the battle. Arcite wins the contest, but then is crushed by his horse while riding to collect his prize. In his dying breaths, he encourages Palamon to marry Amelia. Most live happily ever after, but not Varsity. <laughs> Indeed, and uh, uh, thank uh, you, Will, James. That, um, that's that's a wrap on Shakespeare. Yeah, How
0: I mean, what a about- uh, what a what a plot summary to to ring it out, James. I have to say, but yes, uh, that is it. That is the last of the plays. The last perhaps not the least. I guess we'll get to that in the rankings. But I feel like we're back at the beginning with Two Gentlemen of Verona reading this play.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. I was very struck reading it that it felt like we were going back in time and like had come full circle to where it all started. I would say the, um, the tone of the play is different, but it's quite remarkable how similar the basic themes and plot elements are.
0: Yeah, well, there's this sort of friendship between two men that is sort of genuine, but played a little bit for laughs. There's the love triangle element, and then there's the neat resolution, though through different means in this play than Two Gentlemen of Verona, which is a little bit more of a happy ending for all. Yeah, I'd I'd say
1: this one is equally neat, but definitely not as optimistic. Yes. But Will, I think maybe this is... You know, in line with this being the last play uh, and how similar it is to The Two Gentlemen, I I think a great place for us to start is just to talk about those two plays and not necessarily to rehash everything we talked about with Two Gentlemen of Verona way back in the day, but more just, do you view the similarities and differences of these two plays to tell us anything about the arc of Shakespeare's career and and sort of the, the, the way that we've seen the writing and his interests develop o- over time.
0: Yeah, well, I definitely think that this play is a bit more tonally bittersweet. I mean, it's very funny at points in time. Certainly the Arcity or I've also heard it said Archite character, and the Palamon character, their rivalry is something that's present in both. But in this case, I think that the comedy is very readily apparent, and there's this sort of verbal speed in their banter which Mm -hmm. you can sort of see evolving there's also the darker edge to it which is they are gonna fight basically not quite to the death but somebody's gonna die as a result of this that feels a little bit displaced or removed to a certain extent from the two gentlemen of verona i mean there's some unpleasant stuff in two gentlemen of verona but it has very little to do with that kind of um sharp choice that ends up being presented There's sort of the A plot and B plot that you sort of see some continuity, but it's a little bit more sophisticated. And there's a kind of lightness that this one brings, even while it's not tying everything up with a bow that makes everyone happy at the end. You know, somebody gets crushed crushed by a horse. Uh, So there's, there's some interesting things going on there.
1: I would say that to me, the biggest single difference here is, you know, in Two Gentlemen of Verona, he needed the play to end happily for everyone right or you know i shouldn't say needed maybe but but that play does resolve happily for everyone and the play ties itself into some knots in order to get there Yes. right in order that valentine and sylvia end up together and celia and proteus end up together and they're all welcome back to the city with you know with open arms and it's a happy resolution for everyone
0: yeah absolutely
1: but in order to like achieve that he really has to jump through some pretty unlikely and jarring plot machinations. Whereas here, you know, I'd say the biggest single difference is that we see that or the logic of the situation is respected in a different and I think more truthful way. And that results in everyone getting what they want at the end, at least as expressed in the prayers, which I know we want to talk about later on but it's true to the logic of the plot in that not everyone can have a happy ending for it to resolve truthfully.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And there's an element within the plot machinations where yeah, as you say, the logic of the situation is respected. It doesn't despite being, you know, another play that depends upon the plot device of love or infatuation at first sight, this is not a play that feels quite as extravagantly ridiculous. in the complexities and kind of maneuvering that Shakespeare did in The Two Gentlemen of Verona. It feels a little bit neater, but it also, I think, comes with... It's definitely not quite as light of an entertainment as the two gentlemen of Verona is. It doesn't resort to sort of the cheap tricks of the dog, <laughs> yeah. you know, or sort of a neat marriage in the end. Whereas this case, it, it definitely feels like an older man's play in a sense. I mean, perhaps that's because we know that it's you know, the last play that he contributed to, but there's a commingling of tragedy and comedy in this play. It yeah, well- feels a little bit more wise, perhaps. In it's knowledge of of people and their foibles than The Two Gentlemen does, which feels very much focused on young men, but written by a young man trying to sort of capture that. And
1: antics and...
0: Yeah, there's a little bit more like pratfall and ridiculousness in... The sort of physical comedy. Whereas here you get a little bit more of the commingling of comedy and tragedy that I think comes with some of Shakespeare's later
1: work. Yeah, it, it's very much in keeping with the the tonal shift that we observed, I think, around the time of Antony and Cleopatra, right? Where the plays became more a little bit more elegiac, a little bit more mournful, and also a little bit more I don't quite have a perfect word for it, but where they became a little bit more like ornate. Yeah, yeah. In the presentation, a little bit more, you know, less driven by personality, I think, Mm -hmm. and a little bit more about situation and almost like mythological in in some way. Yeah. I'm not expressing this very well, but...
0: Almost everyone, actually, when when you think about this play, interestingly enough, almost everyone is subject to powers beyond their control, right? Yeah. In the case of Arcite and Palamon, they fall instantaneously in love with Amelia. Mm-hmm. They're also citizens of Thebes who feel honor and duty bound to fight for their city, even though they recognize that Creon is a bad, a bad guy, right? They end up getting freed. They feel totally um, unable to resolve their differences without sort of a duel. Meanwhile, Emilia... Is trapped making this choice that she feels unequipped to make, which is why the duel is is necessary in the end. And of course, there's the jailer's daughter character who is also subject to her own love at first sight and then madness, right? So it, yep. in that sense, everybody is being acted upon in some way, right? Or at least that's the presentation. And that actually lends itself to a, a different kind of structure perhaps than in some of the some of the earlier plays where you get the sensors, yes, there might be love at first sight, there might be the rational emotions, but here it just feels very consistent that almost every single character is trapped by circumstance or forces beyond their control in a way mm-hmm. and you're at the whims of the fates and the gods and so forth uh, which is explicitly addressed in the end yeah but that also seems like an older man's insight in a way
1: well than, I do than younger man's. I mean yes and no I, I think that's actually one of the great constants that we've seen through Shakespeare's work where we see the conflict between the rational and the irrational in a way, right? I mean, Romeo and Juliet, the love at first sight, the overwhelming, I, I guess what I'm what I'm getting at is, is not the irrational and the rational, but the way to which in some way our own worst enemy or, or our own worst outcomes are driven by forces that are completely out of our control. And sometimes that's because of a magic potion, like in A Midsummer Night's Dream. And sometimes, and in fact, very often, it's because of some deep emotion. In the case of Romeo and Juliet, that's love at first sight. And I think we see that in a couple other plays as well. In the case of Hamlet, it's his deep melancholy and agony, as well as the situation of the murder of his father. I think one thing that has been consistent throughout his plays is, is the sense of you know how subject we are to we being humans uh, to these irrational processes
0: i think that's right i think i'm just suggesting actually or emphasizing the fact that it's um it's more explicit i think in this play and more comprehensive in the sense that yeah. it really is like literally everyone is being buffeted by these circumstances like very explicitly beyond their control you know in hamlet right you have hamlet who is acting but other characters seem to have choice in various ways or don't seem to be quite as captive right you know, to circumstance or obsession even in the two gentlemen of verona right proteus backs down right when he realizes what he's done and he's able to change course in his direction yeah. here the characters are sort of faded to end up as they do and in fact they all get what they want, right? It might not necessarily have been under the circumstances that they had initially envisioned, but everybody gets what they want in some way.
2: Yeah.
1: It's very much in keeping with the Tempest plotline. Now in the Tempest, obviously you have Prospero, who is the one dictating all those events, but the rest of that play feels like it is, everyone is sort of acting out the role that Prospero assigns to them. And here it, it seems like that, except that you know, it's not Prospero or some character who's doing that. It's just, like, the situation that's orchestrating this thing. And and everyone almost seems like they are fated to carry out the role that the situation has put on them.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I actually kind of enjoy this mingling of comedy and tragedy that he employs pretty effectively here. But it is interesting to think about characters that are prisoners of their situation. I mean, some of the dialogue... Is very funny. I mean, literally when Palamon and R. C. D are in prison, you get some great dialogue, some great banter, and you have this wonderful commentary on, well, if we can use our imaginations, we can pretend that we're elsewhere. And of course, they're able to do that to a point until reality roughly intrudes. I love that in the contrast with uh, another character that we want to talk about who really speaks to all of these themes, which is the jailer's daughter, mm-hmm. who is captive of, of delusion, basically. A delusion just as strong, if not stronger, than those the two men that she sort of encounters and Palamon, the man she falls in love with. But yeah, I was, I was going to sort of ask, what did you make of that subplot with a very strange and darkly comic ending to it?
1: I think there was a few elements to it one there's obviously a little bit of a social class commentary Mm -hmm. going on it right i mean the in the very first or maybe it's not the very first but in one of the first sets of dialogue that we hear from the jailer's daughter she says why
2: should i love this gentleman tis odds he never will affect me i am base my father the mean keeper of his prison and he a prince to marry him is hopeless to be his whore is witless.
1: You know, so we're seeing. I think even right there, the way that love is like refracted through this social lens, and what's possible socially and within the bounds mm-hmm. of society is maybe different from what we feel, right? These and these are yeah. these are two opposed for not necessarily always opposed, but in this case, opposed forces to the point of. People being buffeted by forces beyond their control. I, I mean, I think her her emotion, her love for Palamon is a force that she is subject to, but so too is the social situation that she finds herself yes. in, right? Yes. And those two things are intersecting in a way that are creating a big problem for her. So I, I thought that was one interesting piece. I also, you know, on the subject of this following the template of the two gentlemen of Verona, I, I, the jailer's daughter... Is functionally in the Celia role here, yeah. right? If, yeah, if exactly. our readers, if our readers can think one that far back and two haven't blanked out that not very good play from their memory, they'll <laughs> remember that you know Celia is the woman whom Proteus is initially in love with before he departs to is it Milan, Will? It's yeah, Milan, it's Mulan, right? I believe. yeah. And you know, and so she follows him there, and she you know adopts the guise of a page boy. In order to be close to him, and she's watching him chase Mm -hmm. Sylvia around while she's still hopelessly in love with him. Now, of course, that that social commentary isn't there. They are well matched in that play, yes. But it's the same basic, it's the same basic basic concept. And you know, and that that play results with them getting together. This play does not result in Palamon and the Jailer's daughter getting together. She has to go off and marry. This is, well, I have to say this was a bizarre sequence of events to me. (laughs) (laughs) She has to go off and there's the wooer who comes and pretends to be Palamon and then sleeps with her and then she falls in love with him under false pretenses or what seemed to be false pretenses. But ultimately she marries within her social class. So I would say if if we're going to continue with the compare and contrast Mm -hmm. two noble kinsmen versus two gentlemen of Verona thing here, I think that this is that kind of older, wiser, a little bit more pessimistic yeah. view where she can't get what she wants, right? It can't It can't result with her right. being happily married to Palamon at the end. It can result with her being happy, or we think happy. Yeah. Or
0: certainly ch- married, at least. Yeah, uh, <laughs> married and,
1: and seemingly... You know, the play does want us to feel okay about it in a... 16th century or 17th century context yes (laughs) the play wants us to feel like she ended up in a good place or a good enough place yeah but it's much more realistic about what that looks like as opposed to now i know we said i know celia and proteus were of the similar social class but as we noted before it takes a real leap of logic to flip around proteus from his being obsessed with sylvia to being like, oh, actually, I've been in love with Celia the whole time.
0: Yeah, abs- absolutely. I think um, the class commentary, not to get all Terry Eagleton about it or anything, but I do think that there's uh, interesting commentary in a lot of Shakespeare's later work where this sort of theme of class or social cast and what's permissible and what's not becomes much more explicit. Mm-hmm. And I think you can even see, even in the plays where that's less of a focus, even in something like, say, um... Troilus and Cressida, you know, you do have this social critic element to a lot of Shakespeare's later work that just kind of creeps in. And it's funny here in the B-plot, because as you say, there's no way that she can have the thing that she wants. What I think is actually very striking about it, right, is it's not like what she is experiencing is any different in substance than what Palamon and varsity experience it's love as a kind of madness in her case obviously it sends her into like a gibbering mess but there's a sort of gender thing there and also a class or caste distinction where she's not going to be able to not just have what she wants but what she to want the thing that she wants is almost a form of madness and she recognizes it in and of itself that way, when she says Demerium is hopeless to be as whore as witless, she is clearly recognizing that the way to madness is to want to transcend the circumstances of your birth and to have something that can't happen, right? Yeah. So I, I do think that that's actually rather remarkable. you know. And you can sort of make some sort of argument that when they escape to the woods, it's this kind of lawless place, but actually the forces of social order reimpose themselves even in that space, right? And the logic of the play continues and can't really be escaped in these magical locations. Which, you know, that actually feels like a theme in a lot of the plays as well, is you might have something that contrasts with the city. You might have the space that lies outside of conventional society, but everything gets reimposed in the end, and you sort of end up back where you... um,
1: yeah, well, you started, as, you know? as we discussed with The Tempest just in our last yeah. episode, right? Or sorry, not our last episode, but two episodes ago, where the island is a place that is outside the bounds of society. It's free of these social strictures. And so it's a place where certain things are possible that wouldn't be possible on the mainland. But at the same time, everyone's trying to get back.
0: Yeah, right? exactly. No one actually
1: exactly. wants to, well, not no one, you know, the characters who benefit from the lack of the social institutions don't necessarily want to go back, but... The others do. But that yeah. too is a, right? Like, remember, Valentine went and went became the king of the outlaws in the forest. In, yeah, in yeah, China. exactly. When you were saying all that, Will, it did make me just go down a little bit of an intellectual rabbit hole. And I, and I don't want to overstate this, because I think Shakespeare obviously hits on a lot of themes and a lot of ideas in the course of his 39 plays that mm-hmm. we've read. But it does occur to me that this conflict between... What we want, you know, between what the heart desires and what is socially possible may be, if not the single most important, one of the three or four most significant and important themes within the canon, right? I mean, I think of this play, I think of Romeo and Juliet and the impossible love of, of those two characters, I think of Othello... Yeah, for and, sure. Y- y- you know, and what's going on with Othello and Desdemona and Iago mm-hmm. and, you know, Venetian society. I think of the Merchant of Venice and the yep. whole yep. subplot of Shylock's daughter. There's what happens to Ophelia Yeah, from Shamlet. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you mentioned Troilus and Cressida before. I mean, this is... This is an idea that Shakespeare has come back to just over and over, and in different forms. I want to be clear. like Yeah, yeah. not It's not all the same
0: structure. Like, different forces yeah. are sometimes in play. Sometimes it's these sort of broader social categories and dynamics. Sometimes it's... Um, the obsession like hamlet it's the obsession with something else rather than being in a relationship at all that is the factor but nonetheless right it's but what the heart wants runs into obstacles and thinking about as you're talking i I thought of the uh, stephen stills song it's if you can't be with the one you love love the one you're with which is a crazy sentiment in very unromantic terms but it's exactly where shakespeare seems to end up Both with respect to where Amelia ends up with Palamon, where she doesn't really have a preference between the two men. She doesn't even really know which she prefers at the end of the day. And um, ultimately, the jailer's daughter ends up with this guy who she's basically going to be acculturated to accept, despite presumably rejecting him at an earlier point before the play starts. We've talked a lot about Shakespeare's realism and pragmatism, like political realism, but I think also a certain degree of social and personal realism and pragmatism is kind of a, a huge human element that runs beneath the course of all of these things, which is like, if you were to live like some of these characters... You would either be destined to be unhappy or dead, or you would have to make compromises. And in this case, right, people end up having to accept something less than they had imagined or something different than they had imagined, in order to be happy. So there is that thread, I think, running through here, which is a vivid contrast with some of the unhappier versions of these stories.
1: Does that make sense? Yeah, and I I would also go so far as to say that there's a little bit of a flip side where there are plays where there's almost a triumphant meeting where the the possible becomes the real, right? I think Beatrice and Benedict is the... Yeah. The greatest—I mean, that probably is my favorite of the comedies. Uh, But I think part of what's happening in that play is Beatrice and Benedict are so clearly right for each other and so clearly meant for each other in some way. Mm -hmm. And the whole drama of the play is them being able to accept that that's where they need to resolve. That's where they need to go.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Right? Exactly. And so— I think that play is kind of the avatar of the what this looks like in the yes. positive. Yes,
0: yes. Yeah, well, whereby interacting with the person and being... Obviously, the thing with the jailer's daughter is weird and kind of screwed up. Partially by virtue of the doctor's recommendation oh for, I don't know whatever the opposite of aversion therapy is, but it's kind of like the psychological reconditioning under Let's pre-tenses. just say <laughs> that
1: this would not be considered an appropriate treatment in 2022. Yes,
0: the American Psychological and Psychiatric Associations do not endorse these methods, dear listeners. But it is a funny commentary in and of itself that those are the means that are used here, which definitely feels pretty sketchy. At the same time, right, as with Beatrice and Benedict, there is this, well, by interacting and by being in this situation, (laughs) you eventually do realize that you like the other person, even where there's adversarial elements to it, or even where it's not necessarily what you think you want, but it ends up being very much what you want in the end. So yeah, it's kind of striking in that regard. So on the subject of what people want, and I think we've touched on it a little bit, But do we want to talk about the prayers a little bit that are all answered in various ways? The prayers of Arsety and Palamon
1: and... So, yeah, well, I I don't want to subject our listeners to the probably six pages worth of text that it would take to play (laughs) all three of these prayers. But suffice to say that I think Palamon and Arcity are almost indistinguishable throughout most of this play. (laughs) Let me just read this line by Amelia. I
2: am. Sotted, utterly lost, my virgin's faith has fled me. For if my brother but even now had asked me whether I loved, I had run mad for Archite. Now if my sister, more for Palamon. Stand both together, now come ask me, brother. Alas, I know not. Ask me now, sweet sister. I may go look. What a mere child is fancy that having two fair gods of equal sweetness cannot distinguish but must cry for both. Now,
1: I'm not crying for both, Will, but I do feel like that two fair gods of equal sweetness that you cannot distinguish pretty well represents the divergence between Arsene and Palamon here, which is psychologically and in terms of personality, they seem to be basically the same person. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly, exactly. But this,
1: the sets of prayers that happen, I think, is the moment where you do see a distinction between them, where Arsity prays for victory in battle, where Palamon prays to win Amelia's hand. And then Amelia, for her part, basically prays to end up married to the one who loves her best. But that distinction between Arcady and Palamon there, I think, is the moment where we actually do see a divergence in their personalities, where Arcady has this more martial... Prayer, like Mm -hmm. he he wants Mm -hmm. to win like he wants to win the duel that's his sort of frame of reference whereas Palamon's frame of reference is that he wants to marry Amelia and that's a subtle distinction in terms of the practical question of what's going to happen in the duel but it is I think maybe indicative of a different way of viewing the world at least Mm -hmm. and I think it's interesting that ultimately right the almost the whole point of the play is that all three of them get what they want, but for all of them to get what they want, and this is what we were saying before, they can't all get what they want and also have it resolve happily. Yes, yes. What did you make of this moment? Well, I do think it is
0: sort of revelatory what they choose to focus on, and in some ways, in some ways it really is a matter of indifference who ends up praying for what precisely. I mean, the only prayer that seems like a, a... deeply rooted reflection of who they are and what their situation is is the prayer to diana Mm -hmm. by amelia
2: this is my last of vestal office i am bride habited but maiden-hearted a husband i have pointed but do not know him out of two i should choose one and pray for his success but i am guiltless of election of mine eyes were i to lose one they are equal precious I could doom neither that which perished should go to it unsentenced, therefore, most modest queen he of the two pretenders that best loves me and has the truest title int, let him take off my wheaten garland, or else grant, The file and quality I hold, I may continue in thy band.
0: That's more reflective of her overall situation, which is she's the object of this love triangle, right? But it is striking to me that you have these sort of characterizations. I'm trying to think back to who actually saw her first, and I think it was Arsody. If I recall correctly.
1: Well, Palamon describes himself as seeing her first. Oh, that's right. I that first saw her. I that took possession first with mine eyes of all those beauties. We didn't, by the way, Will, we didn't talk about this weird bro code moment and the whole, like, I saw her first thing. But I thought that was very That was was pretty funny. funny.
0: That was pretty funny. That was actually one of the better moments, I thought, of the comedy in the play. I think all of which is to say, you know, so you do have that, like, that is total happenstance, who happens to see Amelia first. I totally believe that if Arsity had seen her first, you would have just had the exact same situation play out, most mm-hmm. probably, maybe not. But you don't really have a ton of detail to distinguish these personalities, except perhaps maybe you're getting a, a slight hint in that scene where they see her, the Palamon is, is maybe a little bit more inclined towards uh, the ways of love, but probably not. So it is an interesting choice to sort of have them all offer these prayers to separate gods and goddesses in the hopes of actually getting what they want. I think the other thing that, that struck me about the prayers is actually the staging Because I believe everything is sort of described as there's elements of how you'd stage this with, there's references to sort of the clanking of armor and and other things when the prayer to Mars is going up and so on and so forth. There's a lot of music and pageantry in this play, which we haven't commented upon, but I feel like really comes to a head in that scene, which might be the most... You know, important thematically for what the play is actually doing, because it's the most explicit example of you might get what you want, but what you want may not come to fruition exactly in the way that you envision it. Right. You know, I, I, if I were to point to sort of a flaw, I think it is the fact that Arcady and Palamon are so indistinguishable. You could have done something to make Arcady the one who's more inclined towards warfare and martial gallantry. And I suppose he does win the wrestling match which positions him maybe as the stronger of the two in some ways. Mm-hmm. But I feel like that could have been perhaps drawn out a little bit more and therefore heightened sort of the contrast and characterization. And you could have made Palamon a little bit more of the- The romantic. Romantic one. Yeah. Of the two. And then it would have maybe added a little bit of extra pathos. But also, part of the comedy functionally is that they are so indistinguishable and that they are sort of being buffeted around by the same forces without a ton of grounding in anything real. So yeah. there's sort of a, a bit of a tension there, but you can see it come to fruition in the prayers to a certain extent. But it's an interesting choice. You know, you, you don't have a ton of extremely extended reflections of this kind, apart from the jailer's daughter. So yeah. it's interesting to sort of uh, have that as kind of the, the penultimate or almost penultimate scene to set up the final confrontation and the resolution of the play.
1: Will, do we think that Amelia and Palamon are destined for a life of happiness? I
0: mean... I don't see why not, to be perfectly honest. I mean, and even if they, I suppose one of the tricks is even if they aren't, they can certainly live with it.
1: Yeah. I, I guess, Will, on, um, you know, my, just my last thought on, on this prayer scene, and, and I guess really it's more about the whole arc of this play. Theseus has this line where he says,
2: Oh, you heavenly charmers, what things you make of us. For what we lack, we laugh. For what we have, are sorry. Still are uh, children in some kind.
1: You know, I think that idea that divine powers are, are having their way with us and we're all sort of acting out these roles and we don't really have any control over on, our own lives. I, I think that that is still present here, right, in these prayers. And, and ultimately, the prayers are all answered, but in this ironic way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which I guess it makes me like, just wonder, what is Shakespeare's, like, why was this the choice? For the last play and maybe he didn't know it was his last play or maybe it was just that fletcher came to him and said i want to do this chaucer adaptation can you help me out mm-hmm. but i appreciate it in that full circle aspect and in that where we've ended up is really just a more how would i say it you know he started in one place with two gentlemen And he ended up here, and in a way it's the same place, but it's the same place just with a lot more real insight and wisdom about what that actually looks like, as opposed to what he wanted it to look like, or was trying to make it look like as a younger man.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I do think that there is a real... there is real growth. I think this play comes out much better than Two Gentlemen of Verona, and we'll, we'll talk about the rankings in just a moment. But I do think it reflects an evolution both in the craft and theme, even while some of the themes are contiguous. There is sort of an evolution, and you do get the sense he's still trying to make some comments, uh, and he's not quite done yet in this play, even if he's only writing scenes or acts of it. Yeah. And that's kind of interesting uh, in and of itself.
1: Well, Will, on that note, tell me, brass tacks, where would you rank it?
0: So, I actually think that I'm going to put this in my 24 spot. I actually thought this is pretty good, all things considered. It's the middle of the pack and, you know, really maybe in the bottom. It's certainly in the bottom half of the plays. But I thought it was pretty good. You know, I I liked elements of it. I also listened to it while I was out on a run. And I have to say that it was a lot funnier listening to it performed than I had anticipated it being on the page. But it just goes to show that with good acting and with some decent writing underpinning it, you can actually get great Great drama and comedy out of a lot of Shakespeare's lesser-known works. So I, I put this my twenty-four spot. That's below Henry the Eighth and above All's Well That Ends Well for me. What about you?
1: Uh, well, I'm I'm not sure. Uh, you know, I'm looking at my I'm looking at my list here. Here's the thing. I, I think I liked the play basically, but I think the characterizations are are just not as strong as a lot of the yes. other plays. And I think that's a little bit of a drawback for me. If, if I'm looking at this list, I think actually All's Well That Ends Well, which which you've just moved down, is a great comp for it. And it's like sort of in that yeah, All's right. Well That Ends Well, Measure for Measure, Merry mm-hmm. Wives of Windsor. I'm probably gonna put it one spot below you at 25. I think mm-hmm. it's gonna be, so my 25 is the Merry Wives of Windsor. Mm. So that would slot it between Measure for Measure and, and Merry Wives. Yeah. And I think as much fun as the Merry Wives of Windsor is as, Shakespeare in a new mode and doing farce I think this play is just a little bit more sophisticated and a little bit more just tonally interesting
0: yeah I agree And
1: then will I'm gonna anoint the jailer's daughter as the MVP of, of this play and, and again it's it's a tough one on this regard because I feel like the characters it's not really about the characters in, in some essential yes. way
0: it's about the situation
1: yeah but I found her I think to be the most amusing and the most interesting. Palamon here. What about you?
0: I, I actually agree with that. I think she's definitely the MVP. I think she has some of the most amusing and extended remarks. And I actually think she comes closer to having a personality than either Palamon or RCD do. So I give her a lot of credit. I also think that her arc is um, interesting. It might not be the exact word, but we can euphemistically call it one of the more interesting arcs in the play, shall we say.
1: Yeah. And uh, Will, that is 39 plays. That is... By William Shakespeare.
0: That's a lot of plays, James.
1: I mean, I'm I'm still a little bit uh, I'm a little bit floored that we made it. Will, before we wrap up this final episode mm-hmm. on uh, on Shakespeare, do you have a non-Shakespearean recommendation this week?
0: I do, James. So I was doing research yesterday in the Library of Congress, and I was looking at the papers of John Hay, and I was picking up a uh, biography of him by John Talaferro called All the Great Prizes. Now, for listeners, John Hay was, as a young man, Abraham Lincoln's private secretary and later biographer. And then he had a great third act as uh, Teddy Roosevelt's secretary of state. And he was also an acclaimed poet you know, a newspaper editor and publisher, ambassador to Britain, negotiated all of these big treaties. But I did not know a ton about his sort of personal wit or life beyond sort of his his accomplishments uh, professionally. And he really was sort of a a massive figure, particularly in the first and, and last thirds of his life. But one of the things that amazed me going through his papers at the Library of Congress is how witty and amusing his letters and his diaries are. And picking up the book, All the Great Prizes, it provides you with all of that, plus the context of history that he's sort of moving through. And it just strikes me as one of those great lives of the 19th century that bridges into the 20th century, and that period that we don't really think of all that much today, because we're either focused on things that happened very recently, or sort of in the founding period, but we forget about this whole category of Americans who had great achievements, but also are sort of recognizably modern mm-hmm. and cut an interesting figure across the stage in ways that we might profit from learning about. So I, I recommend that book on John Hay.
1: You just give us the title one more time, Will?
0: All the Great Prizes by John Talaferro.
1: And that is our show. Next time on Bardflies, we will be doing a wrap-up episode to revisit our rankings and offer some final thoughts on the bard. And in the meantime, Will and I will be continuing to all things Shakespeare. We are also thinking about potential future bards to feature on Bardflies. Uh, so if there is a writer, filmmaker, or other kind of bard you would be interested in hearing us talk about, we want to know. Please send us your thoughts, ideas, complaints, observations, lamentations, whatever else to bardfliespodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you as we wrap up this first season uh, of our show. Thank you.